The United States and Europe are home to some of the world's highest living standards and most liberal democracies, and they allocate billions in aid every year to developing countries. So why does the rest of the world have such disdain for the West? And why are so many countries in the global south pulling away from Western partnerships in favour of Russia, China and India? The colonial history of Britain and France, or America's penchant for meddling in the affairs of other countries like the world's police force, undoubtedly play a factor in the formulation of attitudes to the West elsewhere in the world. But dig a little deeper and you begin to see that the reasoning behind the Global South's mistrust of Western powers goes far beyond historical legacies. We're going to pull back the facade of the West's liberal democracies to reveal just how they manipulate the rest of the world. We'll examine how and why so many countries in the Global South are choosing to align with the East. And finally, we'll explore what America, Britain and the powers of Europe have to do if they want to turn the tide. Western powers position themselves as the world's moral arbiters, championing human rights, democracy and the rule of law on the global stage. In doing so, they impose rules and values in other territories, expecting less powerful developing countries to observe these norms. But many in the global south argue that the West is just upholding a double standard, forcing others to abide by principles that they themselves often disregard. Let me give you some examples. A cornerstone of the West's current political dogma is this idea of a rules-based international order. Under this concept, countries voluntarily agree to follow a set of rules or principles that govern their behaviour and interactions. These rules are enshrined in various treaties and conventions, the idea being that this will lead to a more stable and just world, preventing conflicts and assuring mutual progress. One key principle of the rules-based order as laid out in Chapter 1 of the United Nations Charter is that countries should refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. But in just the past two decades, the interventions in Iraq, Syria and Libya, not to mention many others, serve as a poignant example of Western countries invading and infringing on the territories and affairs of countries all around the world. In the case of Iraq, the US-led invasion in 2003 was justified on the premise of removing weapons of mass destruction. And although the invasion led to the toppling of Saddam Hussein, who I think we can probably all agree was a bit of a piece of work, we now know that the WMD premise was totally false and that US intervention ultimately led to violence, instability, and the rise of extremist groups like ISIS. Similarly, in Syria, America and other Western powers supported various rebel groups in their fight against President Bashar al-Assad, but the conflict escalated into a complex civil war, leading to widespread destruction and civilian casualties, not to mention a flood of refugees surging into Europe. And in Libya, the US and its NATO allies intervened in 2011 to save civilians from the alleged atrocities of Muammar Gaddafi and his forces. Now, admittedly, Gaddafi had been in power for decades and was demonstrably willing to massacre his countrymen to maintain a grip on power. But this intervention completely disregarded the efforts of the African Union to reach a diplomatic solution, and the intervention was conducted entirely from the skies. NATO air forces carried out literally thousands of aerial raids, bombing huge swathes of Libya into oblivion and killing civilians in the process. Subsequently, NATO's near total disregard for the future of Libya following Gaddafi's execution saw the country just spiral into yet more civil war 
with rebel factions, including Islamic extremists, vying for power. Libya is now widely considered a failed state, and the spectre of Islamic extremism has spread throughout much of Africa. Now, in each of these examples, the US, UK, and other Western powers have by definition violated the territorial integrity and the political independence of several countries. Supposedly, they did so in the interest of human rights and to protect civilians. But any Western claim to moral righteousness is completely undermined by a lack of consistency and often self-serving interests. London and Washington cannot possibly present themselves as saviors and defenders of the people in Syria and Libya, all while funneling a steady supply of weapons to Saudi Arabia and turning a blind eye to the years of brutal atrocities meted out in Yemen. Or, for example, China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims, which is ongoing. And why did Western powers not intervene in Rwanda, when hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered in a matter of weeks? Many argue because doing so would return no obvious economic or political gain. For evidence that the Global South is well and truly fed up of Western hypocrisy, look no further than the world's response to the war in Ukraine. In the West, Vladimir Putin's invasion of his sovereign neighbour marked the beginning of a murderous, imperialist crusade to seize territory and erase the identity of the Ukrainian people. The US, EU, and a few other Western aligned countries like Japan, South Korea, and Australia, condemned the war. They slapped Russia with all manner of economic sanctions while committing billions to military and humanitarian aid programs in support of Kyiv. But although most countries disapproved of the armed invasion of Ukraine, many nations in the global south looked on with indifference, and some criticized the West for supporting Kyiv. Brazil, South America's largest economy, has refused to provide aid to Ukraine, accused the Biden administration of stoking war by arming Kiev, and suggested that Ukrainian negotiators consider relinquishing control of occupied regions in order to achieve peace. More than a dozen African countries abstained from UN resolutions condemning Russia's invasion, continuing to foster economic and trade ties with Moscow. Others, like Mali and the Central African Republic, have renewed partnerships with mercenary forces from Russia's Wagner Group. And the Association of Southeast Asian Nations offered no more than a token response, calling for a cessation of hostilities, but making no further efforts to support Ukraine, or discourage Putin from pressing on. Even India, which enjoys strong ties with the United States, thanks to its shared interest in monitoring China, and working closely on technological development projects, remained firm in its rejection of the Western party line on Ukraine. The perceived hypocrisy of the West, then, is pretty difficult to dispute. But perhaps an even more fundamental issue with the rules-based order concept is that the Global South feels it is being forced to play a game designed by the West according to Western rules. For a rules-based order to be maintained, cross-border organizations and frameworks must exist as a forum to debate, cooperate, and progress according to shared laws and principles. But Western countries utilize these international bodies as instruments through which they can exercise their disproportionate share of power and largely do so for their own agendas. The UN Security Council, as a critical organ responsible for maintaining international peace and security, exemplifies the disproportionate power of Western states within the global order. The Council consists of five permanent members, the P5, who established themselves as the most important world powers in the months following World War II. Among them are the US, the UK, and France, who hold veto power over any resolutions. This authority allows them to protect their interests and their allies, regardless of the broader international consensus. It also allows Western countries to exert power and influence 
in territories that have absolutely no say in the matter. Take Africa as an example. It is the second largest continent by landmass, contains more than 50 countries, and an abundance of natural resources that are vital to both the West and the East. Not to mention that it's home to more than a billion people. And yet, not one African nation has a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, and are therefore unable to veto any resolution taken by the Council that pertains to African affairs. The same goes for South America, despite Brazil being one of the world's top 10 largest economies and biggest countries. Not even India, despite its huge population, rapidly growing economy, and massive influence in the East and throughout the Global South, is a member of the P5. This glaring asymmetry, where a select few possess the authority to shape global affairs, undermines the very essence of a rules-based system that emphasizes collective decision-making. One principal argument in favor of a rules-based order, as it's portrayed by Western governments, is that it can be an antidote to the concept of might makes right. The idea that, in the absence of a higher authority or framework to enforce rules, the powerful nations can simply shape course of events and influence the behavior of weaker nations, taking unjust advantages left, right, and center. This is an enduring theme of Western foreign policy rhetoric and is often parroted by diplomats. A perfect example was given in 2021 when US Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Chinese officials in Alaska. In a clear jibe, he said, Our administration is committed to leading with diplomacy and to strengthen the rules-based international order. He argued that the alternative is a world in which might makes right and wins take all. But Blinken's moral proselytizing holds no weight. The US may not be engaged in any active wars, with the exception of a few hundred troops stationed in parts of Syria and Somalia, etc. And Britain and France are no longer colonial powers, with near total dominion over Africa. But by solidifying themselves as pillars of global governance in the aftermath of World War II, at a time when might really did make right, Western countries have managed to maintain their power. They simply exercise it in a soft manner through an asymmetrical, inequitable system of officialdom. In other words, the very rules-based order they're so keen to uphold. This is also where the legacy of colonialism comes into play. One glaring example of this is France's enduring control over the economies of its former colonies. Despite gaining independence in the last century, 14 African countries still peg their currencies to the euro through the CFA franc. This arrangement requires these countries to deposit half of their foreign exchange reserves in the French treasury, and the money is printed in France itself. France argues that this just offers stability and helps keep a lid on inflation. But critics say the system simply allows France to maintain economic and political leverage over its former colonies. It facilitates trade and commerce by boosting market access for French companies and means that France remains a financial transaction hub, allowing French banks and financial institutions to simply capitalize. In short, France may present the CFA franc as a cooperative partnership that's designed to stabilize West African economies. But the underlying economic and strategic advantages that France enjoys as a result merely affirm its vested interest in preserving this system of financial control. Although the relationship of South and Southeast Asian nations with the US are growing stronger, largely due to mutually beneficial military ties to monitor China, the attitudes of much of Africa and the Arab world towards the West are undoubtedly strained. A recent BBC poll showed a considerable decline in the United States popularity among Arab youth, with 57% now viewing it as an adversary. Perhaps even more alarmingly, a German survey of nine Arab nations, as well as Iran, Turkey, and Israel, said, in five countries, including the UAE, Egypt, and Jordan, 
all of which he considered traditional allies to Washington, public opinion showed greater confidence in Russia than the United States. Seven of the countries viewed the war in Ukraine as a geopolitical conflict between Russia and the West, rather than just a war between two countries, and all nine countries saw Washington as the war's biggest beneficiary. An anti-colonial tide has swept through West Africa as of late, with military coup in Mali, Burkina Faso, and most recently Niger, resulting in a rejection of the French involvement in African affairs, and South Africa, keen to cement its standing as an equal partner in BRICS, has roundly embraced Russia and China, conducting joint military exercises, and openly professing support for the actions of its old historical friend in Ukraine. Western governments seem dumbfounded by the Global South's lack of support for Ukraine and its tilt towards Russia and China, particularly given that those countries are seen as authoritarian and intolerant in the West. But for much of the Global South, the allure of Russia and China stems from their portrayal as attractive counterweights to Western unipolarity. Russia's invasion of Ukraine was not roundly applauded, but the narrative that the West provoked Russia by seeking to expand the NATO security alliance eastwards holds a lot more weight. And China, with its non-colonial economic approach and commitment to improving trade and infrastructure, is very well positioned as an alternative partner to what is seen as kind of a domineering West. If the United States and Europe want to rekindle their cold relations with many in the Global South, they need to take a number of key steps. Firstly, Western governments, especially the US, have got to realize that the era of unipolarity that characterized the end of the Cold War and the turn of the millennium is well and truly over. Secondly, the West has got to embark on a proactive course to restore trust by addressing historical grievances and then re-evaluating its foreign policy to approach countries in the Global South as partners instead of weaker countries to be taken advantage of. The West's engagement in economic partnerships and development initiatives must be grounded in genuine collaboration. Learning from the successes of Eastern powers by crafting initiatives that empower rather than purely impose and aligning with local aspirations will definitely help to restore some goodwill. Now, of course, it's the prerogative of every government in every country to engage with others in a way that benefits their own people. But the West has got to start showing some respect for the sovereignty and the interests of developing countries if it wants to warm the icy relations it has with the rest of the world. An effort on the part of Western countries to consider how their international institutions could be reformed to offer greater standing to the global south, thereby reflecting the contemporary multipolar reality that we're now living in, would constitute a major step towards this. And finally, reforms that ensure more equitable representation and decision-making will undoubtedly help to bridge the trust deficit. And that is what might help the West to prevent this seismic shift of the global south eastward.